0: Welcome to Rocksteady, an Express Newark Podcast. And now our host, Dr. Fran Barkowski.
1: Welcome to Rocksteady at Express Newark at Rutgers University in Newark. I'm talking today with my colleague and friend, Tim Raphael. Tim is a professor of theater and a former very active director in the world of theater. Um, Tim is the author of a book called The President Electric, Ronald Reagan and the Politics of Performance as someone who has a PhD in Performance Studies from Northwestern. Um, But we're gonna be talking today about the interlocking initiatives that he's been Doing and promoting and creating in recent years um, in his capacity, two capacities. One, as director of the Center for Migration and the Global City here at Rutgers Newark. Um, Rutgers Newark, some of you may or may not know, is the most diverse undergraduate student body in the US. And so a center on migration and the global city is just perfectly placed here. And Tim has been directing that for a number of years. In more recent years, Tim um, brought to life an amazing project called Newest Americans. And in an earlier podcast I did with Tim's colleague, Julie Winoker, she talked about some of the work that Newest Americans have done, um, in particular stories from the pandemic. But I want to try to get in this conversation um, with Tim, a sense of what in this present that we're all living—this long, long duration of the present—welcome, um, Tim. And let me ask you this as an opening question: What would you say you miss most in this long present? And What has kept you lifted, uplifted in the face of that?
0: Mm. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction, Fran. Those are really, really fine questions. I think one of the things the pandemic has done for me, and I I think I'm probably not alone in this, is it's given um, a space or forced a kind of reflection um, about what it is that is really important to us in this moment uh, in in our lives. and so this question of what what I've missed most and what has uplifted me the most is really sort of the I think the daily struggle and opportunity of the pandemic, which is um, yeah, how we can both uh, rise to the challenges uh, that the pandemic has presented us with, but also take an opportunity to to reflect on those things that are particularly um, salient, fundamental,. Um, the driving forces in our lives. I think for me, one of the nicest things about the pandemic was that um, early on, both of my kids, who are twenty and twenty-five, and one of whom lives in New York City and is finishing up her uh, college career, and uh, my and that's my daughter and my son Noah, who's in Los Angeles, um, came home uh, and for the first time in seven or eight years were. Uh, home together for a substantial amount of time, and that—that that I think was both, yeah, uh, you know, on a deeply personal level, obviously really satisfying that both of my adult kids would want to come home <laughs> in a moment like this. Um, but also something that we were seeing reflected in the stories from the pandemic project, uh, which mm. was very shortly after. Uh, the quarantine began, in fact, two weeks after, uh, where uh, many of the correspondents, many of the contributors to stories from from the pandemic, who were high school students and college students, um, wrote about, posted about um, their rediscovery of their relationship with their family and a sense of this kind of forced closeness uh, revealed you know, just how important and just how central their family was in their lives. Now, this was not true across the board. There are many people who were having, who have difficult relationships with their family and have sort of been forced uh, into being home in ways that maybe is, is not quite so healthy. But certainly, um, you know, that sense of the role that your people play, and that can mm. be blood family, but it can also be your close friends. It can be the people who matter most. That's been, I think, a really, really fundamental realization. Um Uh, we are of course, nothing but a network of relationships. And when we forget that, um, you know, life, life is impoverished. (laughs) Um, I think the other thing that I've come to really appreciate, um, in the pandemic is the resourcefulness, um, of our students, um, many of Mm -hmm. our colleagues, um, and the sense in which that uh, despite the sort of horrifying divisions and rancor of the last four years, Mm. um, people have come together in some remarkable ways during this time. Uh, Mm. Whether it's in activism uh, through black lives matter and the, you know, range of social justice movements that have, have expanded in the wake of those protests, or whether it's in the um, commitment and concern for those who are not, Getting the kind of support that they need during the pandemic, and there are many people um, who fall into that category. And and many of our students, again, what the, the the most amazing thing to me about the Newest Americans Project, and the most amazing thing to me about teaching at Rutgers Newark, is that I have access to the world. We have access to
1: mm-hmm. kind
0: of understanding not only of who we, the people, are in the United States, but sort of how connected we are to other parts. Of the world. And um, you know, it's it's certainly we're all aware of the gross inequities in, in our society, but they've really come into relief uh during this pandemic, um, in, in in ways that are both truly tragic, but also um have given people an opportunity to see them clearly and in many cases respond in ways that mm. they before. Mm. So yeah, I'm I'm filled with both trepidation and optimism (laughs) which compete on a daily basis uh isn't that the truth yes
1: compete on a daily basis yeah it really feels like one of the challenges is how do you keep that in balance right because I, i think you're right so many things are in stark stark relief and so many things are utterly inspiring you know that you, what you see people coming together. I mean, I love what you said about we are a network of connections, right? That's what we are in relationship. And when you first said that, it was when you were talking about your kids being home and being, you know, closer as family, as were many of your students. But then to take that to the global, which you also have done, you know, with, with your work with newest Americans and um, I'm wondering, could you could you just dwell a bit on how the global has emerged in the stories from the pandemic? Because mm. I, I, I'm very clear on how the local would yeah. inflect them, but how what can you say about how the global has sort of come through there as well? Yeah. Given the population of your reporters, your students, your student journalists, or, you know, the voices that you've gathered.
0: So, yeah, that's that's a great question. I I think to to answer it, maybe I can segue from the last question, which is. Um, you know, one of the things that the pandemic has also made very clear to me, which I knew, but has been really uh, 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 accentuated, highlighted
1: mm-hmm. during the
0: pandemic, is that. Um, for answers for uh for asking the right questions for pursuing self-care i've turned to artists um that's Mm -hmm. what i do i believe Mm -hmm. especially in moments like these there's a kind of truth um and a kind of uh probing and questioning that artists do that almost no one else does and at the very beginning of the pandemic i was struck by um a piece written by the great um Indian writer and activist, Arundh- Arundhati Dati Roy, um, mm-hmm. which is a fabulous piece that everyone should read called The Pandemic is a Portal. Um, and she really talks about how historically pandemics um, have been uh, a passage between an old world and a new world. Mm. And, um, that there are choices to be made in these moments of uh, of in these kind of liminal moments where we're moving from one space, one place, one experience into another. Um, and she, the, the final paragraph of this piece that she wrote is something I just love to quote really quickly because it's
1: a, it's a beautiful piece. I don't remember it very well, but I remember it was circulating at a certain people were sharing that piece when it first came out. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So she says that historically, uh, I mean, as I said, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. Mm -hmm. It is a portal, Mm
1: -hmm. a gate
0: between one world and the next. And then her last paragraph, um, she writes, we can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly, with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. And that, to me, has been the most inspirational mm, paragraph I've read. Mm, mm. I and mean, this really is an opportunity for us to say, what is it that is no longer useful to us? What are the sort of unexamined assumptions, ideas, behaviors that, um, that are not healthy, either for us or other people or mm. our planet? Um, And how can we use this as an opportunity to shed those? Um, And what would it take to not only talk the talk about what a better world would look like, but what would it take to really take seriously the knowledge that it's not going to happen unless we fight for it? Mm. These two impulses to me have been really sort of centering my, my work and my focus um, since the pandemic began and stories from the pandemic is, is one example of that. I mean, it was our first pivot as newest Americans into trying to figure out how we could be most, most useful, most, most, um, uh, uh, available to our students and our audiences Mm
1: -hmm. in the
0: moment. Um, and again, it's, it, it, That came about because we have this incredible opportunity at the most diverse campus in the United States to really understand um, what's happening in a lot of communities that aren't being covered in most of the major news outlets. And also to recognize who is being left out of things like the CARES Act Mm -hmm. for uh, um, what has just been a horrific uh, toll that the pandemic has taken economically in terms of housing and equity, food uh, uh, food, food, um, scarcity, uh, the kinds of just fundamental, uh, issues that face so many people. Mm Um, and so, um, I think one of the things that, that I've been trying to figure out in my own life and in my own work is, is. You know, what do we have the capacity to do given this amazing sort of crystal ball we have into the future of the United States? Because the United States will look a lot more like the Rutgers Newark campus in 30 years mm-hmm. uh, than mm-hmm. the administration will look like the country in 30 years. So mm-hmm. it's an opportunity to say, so, so, so what are the challenges, but also what mm-hmm. are the opportunities? Um, and so a lot of the work that we've been doing with Newest Americans and with the center um has been about trying to figure that out mostly with young people. um I, I have to say another thing the pandemic sort of accentuated for me is that I don't want to give up on everybody over thirty. I think that's a mistake. But I also think that, like as educators, if we really take seriously what we do, um, our opportunity, our leverage, our uh, 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 possibility for positively impacting the future has to do with the young people that we engage with. Yeah. Um, yeah. At that level, I'm tremendously optimistic.
1: They are inspiring. They are inspiring being in contact with them. No question. Yeah. Yeah. So is there something, here's a question in terms of what has challenged you the most? What have you learned from through those challenges? Um, that you're perhaps proudest of having done. So it's a kind of reflection on recent years. Um,
0: yeah, that's a really good one. Um, I think, so So this, this, this work that, uh, that the Center and Newest Americans has been doing has been an attempt to um, bring together the three primary functions of um, of the university and the job of being a professor at the u- university, which are, uh, teaching service and research, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. serious
0: fact that if you actually don't separate service out as something that is distinct from research, um, that, um, that there are all sorts of revelations that are possible, especially working at a public university and taking seriously the public charge Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Because I think if you work at a private university, you can, if you choose, decide that you work at an ivory tower and that you are about your research and your teaching and the rest of it is sort of peripheral and minimal. But if you teach at a public university, especially one run by Nancy Cantor, um, (laughs) then every day you're made very aware of the fact that you are part of a stakeholder institution in a city, in a place, in a Mm. state that actually um, you are preparing uh, the future of that city and state. And so I think for me, um, what's become increasingly clear is that I don't I've never been convinced that that um, it's the role of a of a um, of a professor or a scholar to um, to create maximum objective distance. From the work that you do. Uh, I felt pretty strongly that if I had to um, curb any of my advocacy or activist leanings, that that was not in fact in service to the research I was doing, the scholarship I was doing, that that was in fact an obstacle that had been imposed with the assumption that we all live in a world with an equal playing field and that everything is sort of... So... Increasingly, the work I've been doing is, is trying to connect up the advocacy, the service, the uh, teaching um, with the research. Um, mm-hmm. Because these projects that we run, while they are rooted in storytelling and in do- and documentary media, they're also um, really, I think, valuable research tools. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the work that Newest Americans does, most of the work that we do at the center originates from um, ideas that come from our students. Um, Uh I've been classes around Newest Americans for many years. They're sort of research and development labs for the project. Um, They're skill building opportunities for students. Many students who uh, are in the classes uh, that revolve around Newest Americans' work end up working on Newest Americans' projects. Mm -hmm. Um, I see... When I first started at Rutgers Newark in 2002, my students weren't staying in Newark. That just changed dramatically over the last, um, you know, eight to 10 years. And uh, that's partially because Newark is going through a fabled renaissance. Um, Mm -hmm. It's got a tremendously exciting art scene. It's it's a really interesting place right now to imagine what uh, the next incarnation of American cities will be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also really affected the, um, the city in some powerful ways. Uh, Newark historically, as you know, has been seen as sort of a black white city, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where it's all about conflicts between, between, um, white ethnics who came here during, uh, the Ellis Island migration period and post 1965 immigrants who were largely from, uh, non-European countries. What the late, great Clem Price told me many years ago, and what became sort of a mantra for the work I've been doing is Newark is a global city. Mm -hmm. This is a city in which you Mm -hmm. can find the world. Uh, he also said all roads lead to Newark, which again, Clem was given to those sorts of, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it did, it did really make me look into the demographics of Newark and the way in which Newark has always in fact been, uh, more or less a global city. Um, And that really changes the way that I think about teaching in the city. Uh, Mm -hmm. My work is engaging with the city, but also the importance of our students staying in Newark because our students are, uh, you know, as you know, many of them are first gen immigrants. Uh, Many of them are the first to go to college. They are the, they are the, a future of the state in really powerful ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that they're choosing to stay in Newark, the fact that they're choosing to engage with the city, the fact that they're choosing to take their role as citizens as seriously as the profession that they choose um, is something that I find really exciting and really powerful. And Mm. um, so one of the revelations for me is, was uh, during the pandemic was how many of our students we're actively engaged in advocacy, important advocacy for people and issues that that will radically transform um, our state and our country. And mm. they're involved not because they're captured by the ideas necessarily. That's not kind of the center of it, or that there's some sort of abstract connection that they're making to what they're reading in their classes. They're connected because these are issues that are predominantly and overwhelmingly affecting their communities. So it's an opportunity for us to take seriously the fact that the people who are going to solve the big issues of our time need to be the people who are most affected by these big, big issues. Right. Our- right.
1: These are students who are not like polishing their resumes to go out on the job market in the way that students, the distinction you were making before about public versus private institutions, right? Um our students are not thinking about their futures, their immediate futures or their long-range futures in quite that way, right? Given their histories and what is profoundly affecting them, you know? Um, any particular places of activism or advocacy that you came to know more about because of where they were?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, the, when, when the Black Lives Matters protests began... Um I was you know obviously very aware of what was happening and on top of the news and engaged, but um between the large number of students that I had who were really dramatically involved in organizing events, in organizing mm-hmm. um art making in support of the projects, in organizing um uh Uh, programs that were directly facilitating getting food and clothing and shelter to people. Um, I was able to see the city of Newark at the level of the neighborhood, right? Uh Because different neighborhoods have been infected very, very differently. Um, And so both through the Correspondents who were reporting for stories from the pandemic, through students that I was working with um, on senior thesis research during the summer, uh, with um, my own daughter, who was out for, you, know, six weeks straight, every day and night protesting. There was a sense of a generational um, engagement, mm-hmm. like a one-a-lifetime engagement mm-hmm. that I don't think was temporary that I think will dramatically alter uh, their perception of how to engage with politics,
1: Mm. Um,
0: Mm. of what their responsibility and what their opportunity is as a citizen to change the things. They have radically different views uh, about the environment, about social justice, about the really important issues of our day, which to me made it just very, very clear that it's not so much Republican and Democrat, although that's an easy you know, target. I don't understand how one can ethically be a Republican at this point, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but it is about a generational change. There are certain kinds of things that young people just aren't going to stand for anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. That those of us who have been concerned with these issues for a long time have organized against, have, 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 have spoken out against, have whatever. But somehow we accepted... The fact that we were the opposition and that we were, to a certain extent, doomed to fight as the opposition for the rest of our lives. Young people don't feel that way. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what that sound is? Sorry. Mm. Um, and uh, that was really exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was exciting to me because there was a lot of hoopla around the Zuccotti Park protests and all of that that happened, you know, five to seven years ago. I never bought into that because I felt like there's no attempt to organize or do anything actually like establish what we're camping out in a park for. It felt very free form. I got the anti-hierarchical. It's, not, you know, it's a new way of doing politics, but it struck me as um, ineffectual because it didn't take into account the importance of organizing. And mm-hmm. um, I think the one group that came out of that moment that took organizing really seriously was Black Lives Matter. And you can see- in the yep. recent events, how they have been able to mobilize in the way that they have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And mm-hmm. that I think is really striking. And I think that young people like my daughter and my students are seeing that, mm-hmm. right, seeing that, wow, you can make a difference, you can make a change. And yes, sometimes it means you have to put your body on the line. Uh, but the world that adults have made. Mm-hmm. Is Mm-hmm. And you can just go through Roy's list of the things, the baggage that needs to be left behind. Yes. yes. I think that I think that our young people today are more inclined to demand that that be left behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's been really encouraging to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and so much of what what Newest Americans and the center has been trying to do it's not just tell the stories of the most diverse campus on the in, in 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 the US, not just sort of represent our students in uh in an effective light, but to give them the tools to represent themselves because ultimately um, um you know it's their it's their game.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's their world. Yeah. Yeah. Um so, let me ask you this, in terms of um how you know where, where you reside in our world in Newark is both in the Department of Arts, Culture, and Media as a professor and Newest Americans and Center for Migration in Global City, but housed in Express Newark. Could you talk some about how that Um, large structure attached to the ground, as Nancy Cantor said in my first podcast with her, that is a home for you. And you are part of it, one of the many initiatives and programs going on there at the same time that you're sort of working autonomously on projects that may or may not have you collaborating with other people in the space. Um, But the space has been a kind of um, optimal sort of location, right? Since its inception and you've been there from the beginning. Could you spin off on that?
0: Yeah, sure. So so both the center and newest Americans have been sort of wildly collaborative from the very beginning uh, before Express Newark existed, um, partially comes from my background in theater, which is a art form that requires collaboration to, to do anything. And in that sense, it's diametrically opposed to the academic culture in the humanities and the social sciences, which values individual research, individual publication, um, and a kind of atomized approach to knowledge creation. Um, Whereas the theater, and by extension, the work that we've done with the north americans and um, and the center is very much about the possibilities um, of collaborative engagement of of what can be learned, what can be created when you bring lots of people together with a wide range of skill sets and perspectives. and Express Newark is exactly that um, it's it brings together uh, professionals and academics from a wide variety of disciplines um, and media uh, and combines it with a really robust um, engagement with uh, artists and others in the city of Newark it's been an incredible hub for um, uh, exposure at the I think one of the most difficult things in a place like Newark uh, which has a history of suspicion of outsiders, uh, which has a history of, uh, of of contentious relationships along racial lines, which has a history of feeling very understandably like a city that has been kicked to the curb. Um, and because historically Rutgers has not always had a great relationship with the city of Newark, I think Express Newark is a really bold experiment. It's trying to change perception um, by creating a new reality. And um, I th- I would give it mixed grades up to this point, um, <laughs> but I will, I, I'll start with what I think has been tremendously positive. Um, when you bring a lot of people together in the same space and you're walking through that space every day and people are doing things and creating events and creating exhibits, you can't help, but know what other people are doing, get excited about something, realize it's, uh, uh, related to something that you're doing and you can walk down the hall and talk to them about it. Um, it is one of the things I miss. You asked me before what I miss during the pandemic. I miss that. Um, zoom is a great intentional vehicle for meetings and whatever, but there's no sort of There's no sort of, you don't get the kind of kismet that happens when you see something in an exhibit that somebody in the building has put up and you recognize, oh my God, they're doing, that's what I need for my project. And you walk down the hall and talk to them. Um, That's been amazing. And during the time that Express Newark has been in place, we have partnered with, I want to say seven or eight different people in the space, Mm
1: -hmm. but
0: also several community partners that we've met through other projects in the space. Mm -hmm. a great, uh, it's been a great incubator for story ideas, and that's been really exciting. Um, I do. I have to say, I have I, I, I have concerns about the next phase of Express Newark because, you know, the university has put an extraordinary amount of money for an arts um, mm-hmm. initiative, given the history of of Rutgers mm-hmm. Newark where the arts have historically been a service industry essentially for the rest of the university. Um, so it's been an amazing investment and, you know, I'm concerned about the sustainability of such an investment because you know, the history of the arts in the United States, we are the, um, we are the only democratic government in the world. I believe that, doesn't substantially subsidize art and artists
1: yeah 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 and the
0: compelling reasons for doing that it's not merely like oh it's nice to have a little culture um it's because and i i want to make the case i think there's all sorts of ways that you can make the case the soul of a society the Cultural life of the society is critical to the functioning of that society. Let's just assume that is as a given. But I want to argue economically, it is ludicrous to me that we push STEM, STEM, STEM and don't recognize that the vast majority of CEOs in this country, when they're asked, What is it that new employees who are coming to you lack? What is it in their training that they don't have enough of? they say, Creativity and imagination. Right, right, You can right. teach people to do anything. Right. You can teach a monkey to do many of the jobs that are required by the new economy, right? But what you can't do is you can't give people who have been taught to do util- utilitarian work the creativity and imagination to imagine what we need as we walk through the portal. Right. Imagining what this new world should look like, how it can be more equitable, more just, how we can create systems that work better for more people—that's about imagination and creativity.
1: Yeah,
0: and that's what the arts gives. Yeah. To not recognize that the arts is a pr- provides fundamental skills for the economic life of a capitalist democracy is, to me, absurd. And I don't—you yeah. don't even then have to make the argument at any other level. Right. Right.
1: It will be interesting to see, don't you think, given how much the current conditions, i.e. under a new president, um, are making people reflect on the Roosevelt years, the FDR years, and things like the the, the Works Progress Administration and the way that artists were put to work to build the country back up from the depression. I mean, it feels like maybe there's a chance that healthcare, the economy, the COVID crisis, the climate crisis, somewhere in there, it will be understood, feed the arts, and that will feed those crises in ways that are imaginative and creative. I, you know, this is me in my cockeyed optimist way, but, you know, I'm with you. I think that's what, what higher education can and ought to be about is continuing to sort of educate our imaginations.
0: Well, our at the risk of... Over, of imaginations. Yeah, I mean, at, at, at the risk of turning this conversation into an overly abstract level, I think, I mean, there's no mm-hmm. accident that, that the defunding of the arts in the United States, which was never very large in the first place, right. begins during the Reagan years, Um, it is a fundamental tenet of neoliberalism that spending on the arts is, uh, is a, it's not a venal sin, but it is a cardinal sin for sure. And I think part of it is because artists by their nature create work that challenges the status quo and neoliberalism, um, has done an incredibly good job at repressing dissent. And uh, I, while I believe the Biden administration will be in, in words and perhaps occasionally in deeds supportive of the arts and artists, it's cracking neoliberalism that is going to get yeah. the kind of support for arts and other necessary funding yeah. in place. And I don't see that happening over the next four years. I'd like to believe it will. But I think one of the things that we can do it educational institutions is take the arts more seriously than the rest of society does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if not us, then who, I mean, if not here, then where? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so just in kind of moving toward a conclusion of our conversation and asking you to think about, you know, teasers for future projects or what you're most excited about when life returns to something after this present?
0: Much more exciting thing to talk about than the incredibly negative impacts of neoliberalism on the arts. I would love to. So (laughs) one of the things that we're doing right now um, that I'm particularly excited about is um, over the past couple of years, we have been developing curriculum from um, from the stories that we have been making from the media that we've been creating. And uh, over the next two years, we will be um, introducing that curriculum into every public high school in Newark. And uh, that is in collaboration with the Director of Teaching and Learning at the Newark Public Schools, Ann Riley, and with a very generous grant from the Newark Board of uh, Education. So we're really excited about that piece of the work. Um, It is... uh, I believe one of the issues that we have as a society right now, one of the reasons why there's such uh, fear of the other, why there's such anxiety and ignorance around people who live in this country and come here from places that frighten certain people, is because we don't address immigration in our classrooms. Um, it is the case in high school classrooms across the country that immigration, when it is taught, ends with the closing of Ellis Island in 1954 that there is really very little conversation about who's actually in the classroom and how they got here. Um, uh, which all starts with the 1965 uh, Immigration act. So our curriculum is very much about that. Mm. Uh, Who are we, the people today? How does that change the nation? How does that change our notion of citizenship Has that change our notion of what it means to be American? And how does it change the, um, the understanding of, um, of our history. And I think the 1619 curriculum has started incredible conversations Mm. that are directly related to, uh, the curriculum that we're creating. And so I'm very excited about that. Mm. Um, I'm also really excited because we, with funding from the uh, national Endowment for the humanities, we have, um, uh, created and will be launching as soon as it's possible to all be in person. The Newark story bus, which is a mobile audio and photography lab that can go, um, all around the city of Newark collecting stories and training uh, people to do their own oral history work, to do their own photo documentary, photo journalism work. Um, We are going to integrate the story bus into our curriculum and into the work that we're doing with High school students it will allow us to take the bus to high schools around the city and train teachers and students um uh, one one of the very difficult things in newark is getting uh it, it's ridiculously difficult to get students out of the classroom
1: yes um, mm-hmm.
0: and so one of the things that we're trying to do is to bring our classroom to them um the story bus is this incredible uh creation, um, we commissioned two amazing muralists, uh, work and Jira to create the visual look of the story bus. And we could not be more excited by what they've created. Uh, it will not be, you will not be able to miss it as it rolls through the streets of Newark. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's something we're hoping to launch this spring, assuming that Mm -hmm. COVID COVID willing Mm -hmm. Um, and we're we're also going to be with that launch. We'll be starting an arrivals project where we will be going around throughout the city to um, collect stories of how people's families arrived in Newark. Um, and we have a commitment from John Schreiber at um, at NJ Pack to help put together an exhibit around uh, the arrival story once once we've done a sufficient amount of story collecting. We're Ooh. also thinking of trying to organize. Um, moth-type story festivals as we find really great stories of arrival, mm. uh, organized stories in different wards of, of the city so the people who live there can share their stories.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so that's a kind of uh, large-scale project that we're going to um, – that we will initiate with the StoryBust uh, as soon as we're able to get back in person. The other I – mean, there are several other projects that I could talk about, but I think generally because we just had our yearly retreat – and one of the things that we do during our retreat is we have a core team, uh, but then a kind of dozen or so uh, other people who are um, who are regular contributors to the project. We try and invite as many of them to our retreat to talk about what we should be focus on, focusing on in the next year. Uh huh. And the general consensus this year is. Uh, that came out of this meeting was that um, we've been doing a lot of work reporting on um, various inequities that have emerged uh, during the the COVID crisis and, and have kind of been writ large. There was a really wonderful piece that was produced by Marianne Carruth, a journalist who we've worked with on numerous occasions, an MFA graduate uh, of our writing program in in Rutgers-Newark. Uh, and Ed Cassie, who's one of the co-founders of, of, um, of Newest Americans, an amazing photojournalist, uh, where they spent uh, a couple of months in Freehold, New Jersey, following the undocumented laborers who mm. uh, who have been working in Freehold for a couple of decades and trying to tell that story. In this moment, they're ineligible for the CARE Act, and yet they are viewed as essential workers. So uh, the story, which ran under the title Essential uh, but Expendable, um, debuted in Newest Americans and then was picked up by by the nation. And it's actually started interesting conversations about uh, how to organize around the CARES Act uh, for support for people who are undocumented. Um, So- And that's that's
1: going to be this focus for the coming year? Is that what I'm understanding?
0: Yeah, sorry. So so the focus is really um, looking at uh, looking at the state of New Jersey and trying to and trying to understand not just which are the most vulnerable populations in this moment, but trying to really get at sort of what are some of the structural inequities that could be addressed in this portal moment mm-hmm. um, of the pandemic. And it's it's connected up also to a project that's a Rutgers-wide project. There's a working group called Society and Pandemic that has been meeting um, since uh, last summer. And we got a small grant to work on um, to work together with a number of colleagues in New Brunswick and in Camden, mostly in the social sciences, but some in the humanities, who are doing research on vulnerable populations um, and the impact of the pandemic. So we've been trying to yeah. take some of the interviewing that's been done for that project and use it to frame some of our story ideas Uh, not only stories that would go out in the newest Americans uh, uh, website or in national publications like the nation, but also be uh, turned into advocacy materials uh, turned into legislative briefs uh, Mm -hmm. be able to be used by a range of activists and advocates um, who are already working on these issues and, um, and where we think we can help with the storytelling and the framing of those issues in ways that can be productive and useful.
1: That's great. I think that's you know that seems like a great place to kind of conclude our conversation. Um, and really, you've you've given anyone listening so many places to go and look for some of these wonderful outcomes of the work you and your collaborators have been doing. And um, I'm so grateful to learn more about the details of what you and your folks have been up to and are going to be up to. And of course, I can't wait to see the bus. I've been waiting to see the bus for quite some time beyond its uh, you know, life on Instagram
0: yeah.
1: uh, as it gets more and more visible. Um, So thank you. Thank you, Tim, for taking this time. And um, it's been great to hear you and also to see you, which others will not. Um, And this has been Rock Steady at Express Newark at Rutgers University, Newark.
0: Rock Steady is hosted by Dr. Fran Bartowski. Our engineer is Eric Johnson, and our marketing and promotion is done by Dana Demiani. Our theme music is Rock Steady, recorded by Aretha Franklin, and our outro is an original rendition by violinist Dr. Melanie Hill, a Rutgers Nork professor. This podcast
1: is a project of Express Nork, a Rutgers Nork University community collaboratory. <laughs>